Would that God would lay open your hearts this morning as you now lay your hands upon his word and open to the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, and the third chapter, beginning at the 13th verse. Your words have been stout against me, says the Lord, yet you say, how have we spoken against thee? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the good of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? Henceforth, we deem the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but when they put God to the test, they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord heeded and heard them. And the book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and thought on his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, my special possession on the day when I act. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Today's text is intended for two groups of people. The first group are people who doubt the justice of God or who have already made up their minds that he's not just and resent that he doesn't meet their claims upon him. And to that group of people, the text is intended to be a warning to come back from that kind of distrust and dishonoring stance towards God, reconsider the matter more deeply, and grant to God the freedom to vindicate his cause and the claims of justice when and how he will. The other group of people to whom this text is addressed this morning is the people who already trust God's justice. People for whom in our day have been persuaded by his son, Jesus Christ, that he will make things right in the end. And for those people, it's intended to give encouragement and strength and hope for this week's warfare with promises and with descriptions of the kind of people we ought to be. So what I want to do is open up the text in two halves. Verses 13 to 15 address kinds of people we ought not to be. And in verses 16 to 18, the kind of people we should be. And I want to tell you in advance that my prayer last night, my prayer early this morning, my prayer as I stood into this pulpit, my prayer in my heart as I'm able to pray as I preach is that if you're in group one, you'll be in group two before I'm done. By the power of God in our midst. Verse 13, your words have been stout against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, how have we spoken against thee? Now, let's just pause there and think about this for a moment. God is listening in on these people as they talk to one another. Uh, The Hebrew word implies that they're talking to each other here. They're not talking to God. And you can see that if you look at verses 14 and 15, it doesn't say to you. It says to him. It doesn't pay to serve him. They're talking to each other here. And God is listening in. 
to their conversations in the restaurants and at home and on the streets. Now, there's a lesson just in that sheer fact for us that I want to highlight before I get into verses 14 and 15, what they're saying. And the lesson is this. All of your life is a stage. And this world is a theater. And whether it's the kitchen or the car or the bedroom or the street or the bar, God sits in the front seat of the front row and that place is a stage and he doesn't miss a line. Not one line does God miss in the drama of your life. He heard them. They weren't talking to him, but he heard them. The only thing that matters about your conversation, you know, no matter where it is or to whom it is spoken, is what it implies about God. Measure it. Always. What does my conversation imply about God? For he is listening and either being honored by what it implies or belittled by what it implies. Now, what were they saying? Two things. It doesn't pay to serve God. And secondly, it really pays not to. Those are the two verses. Let's take them one at a time. Verse 14. You have said it is vain to serve God. What's the good of our keeping his charge or of walking in mourning before the Lord of hosts? Now, there are two problems with what these people are saying. The first one is evident when you think about it right off the bat. These words are the words of lifeless formalism, not the words of genuine piety. You see, they were going about in black. That's what the Hebrew word means. They were fasting and mourning. They were bringing their animals to the temple, right? You remember that? They had some of the forms of worship down pat, pat. And God had his ears closed and his eyes shut and he would not hear and he would not bless. He was cut off from all this formal worship that was going on. Why? Go back with me to verse 13 of chapter 2, because there's an exact parallel to their complaint in this verse, to the other verse that we just read. They say, this again you do, or the Lord says, this again you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor at your hand. So you see, this is the very same situation as chapter 3, verse 14. They're going about in black. They're fasting. They're weeping. God's ears are shut to their plea. Why? The next verse in chapter 2 gives one of the answers. Verse 14 says, Because the Lord was witness to the covenant between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless. The forms of worship on Sunday have given way to faithlessness on Monday. And when that happens, God's ears go shut on Sunday morning. It is lifeless formalism that is speaking here in chapter 3, verse 14. 
God will not accept our worship on Sunday morning, no matter how intense, no matter how emotional it is, if we plan to leave this church and enter a life of sin. When the forms on Sunday give way to fornication on Monday, mark it, your hands can be lifted, the tears can be streaming, your heart can be hounding, pounding. Hounding might be a better word. But mark it, he won't be listening. And that means that the test at Bethlehem of the authenticity of our Sunday morning experiences and our Sunday night experiences is not merely whether they are intense, but whether we're going to leave this room and walk into sin. That's the first thing that's wrong now with what they're saying. It is lifeless formalism. They're not as pious as they think they are. Their life contradicts their liturgy. Now, what's the second thing wrong with what they're saying? The second thing that's wrong with what they're saying is that they are assuming that when they are righteous, if they were righteous, God would have to respond immediately and materially with blessing. Now, we can see this most clearly if you bring verse 15 into the picture. Remember I said they're saying two things. They're saying it doesn't pay to serve God. That's verse 14. And they're saying it does pay not to. That's verse 15. Let's read it. Henceforth, we deem the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but when they put God to the test, they escape. And I think that word test there is a mockery of verse 10. You know, last week we said, test me, test me, says the Lord. And they say, the evil people test you all day long. And you just let them off the hook and prosper them. So they're throwing back in God's face his plea to test him. What are they saying in verse 15? They get together at a restaurant downtown, Minneapolis, and they say, you know, so-and-so never goes to church and his business prospers. And -and so-and-so's an out-and-out atheist. You should hear the words that come out of his mouth. He's never known a sick day in his life. And he cashed all his profits in on the stock market the day before it crashed. And, and, And then there's this athlete. He just oozes arrogance. He's got this pot belly and he walks around talking about how cool he is. And he makes $400,000 a year and works a third of it. In other words, what they're saying in the restaurant is the arrogant are the truly blessed. The corporate whiz kids are the ones who know what life is all about. They know where prosperity is to be found. Now, what's wrong with this? I said there's a second thing wrong with this. What's wrong with it? I mean, experience seems to teach this. And didn't last week's text set us up for this kind of disillusionment? Remember? What did it say? Bring you the tithes into the storehouse and God will open the windows of heaven and pour down blessing on you. So, do what you're supposed to do. You get blessed. Don't do what you're supposed to do. You won't get blessed, right? So, you look around the world. You see who's blessed. You say, there. They must be the real tithers. Fooey on this religious business. Even the Bible says this. Is that the way we're supposed to handle last week's text? Let me make three observations about last week's text, lest you think that this week's text is somehow a contradiction. 
The command to tithe in verse 10 last week is based on a personal relationship in verse 7. The second half of verse 7 of this chapter, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. And then tithing is given as just one way in which this personal union of heart works itself out. This text last week wasn't teaching that formal, compulsory, external tithing is going to open the windows of heaven. Second observation, last week's text does not say that no evildoers will prosper. What it says is God can bring blight upon his people in order to wake them up, bring them back to himself, get their attention. It doesn't say he might not withhold blight from the wicked for his own sovereign purposes. Third observation. And this is the most delicate and the most sensitive. God promises great blessing to those who are led by their heart into tithing and beyond. Yes, he promises great blessing to those people. But he does not lock himself in to any time frame or any particular definite proportion of material goods. The essence of that promise last week was if you will become a channel of God's riches rather than a cul-de-sac, he'll take care of you. He'll take care of you. He'll meet your needs. Just what Jesus said, if you seek the kingdom first, these things will be added to you as well. It's just what Paul said. I have learned to be content with abundance and want, with plenty and hunger. Now, when Paul said that, I have learned to be content with hunger and want. He was not denying the promise that God blesses obedience. In fact, he would say if he were here this morning, the greatest blessing I've ever gotten is the power to be content when things aren't going well. But then he would also add, taking that Old Testament promise into account, I leave to God the timing and the proportion of material blessing. It will come, mark it. In God's time. That's the second problem that these people have here. The first problem was their life doesn't match their liturgy. They're not as pious as they think. It's lifeless formalism complaining here. And the second problem now is they limit the freedom of God to bless the obedient in his time and in his way. And they box him in and say, it's got to be material and it's got to be now or at least tomorrow. Or you're not worth serving. The arrogant in the world are the ones who really know where it's at. That is the kind of people we are not supposed to be. Now let's go to the second half of the text. Verses 16 to 18. Who are we supposed to be? Three descriptions are given in this text of the kind of people we are supposed to be. And four promises are given to encourage us to be that kind of people. First, we are to be people who fear the Lord. Verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord heeded and heard them. 
And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord. So twice in that verse, the fear of the Lord is commended. That's what we are called to be first. People who fear the Lord. Now, let me just define that for you. I've defined it two or three times in this series. Let me define it again. The fear of the Lord is to tremble at the prospect of dishonoring him by distrust or disobedience. Let me say it again. To fear the Lord is to tremble at the prospect of dishonoring him by distrust or disobedience. And I define it like that so that trust is included in fear. Otherwise, we do not have a biblical understanding of the fear of the Lord. When you have a God who's infinitely gracious and trustworthy, the most fearful, awesome, terrible thought you could have is to distrust Him in His promise. The second description of what we should be, besides fearing the Lord, is to esteem God's name. Verse 16 comes to an end like this. A book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and, and then the RSV less than happily says, uh, thought on his name. That's a very weak translation. If you have an NASB, it says esteem his name. Or if you have a, an NIV, it says honor his name. And that's right. It, it doesn't mean just think about him. It means regard him highly. Honor him. Esteem him. We're to be the kind of people who hold God's name in such high regard that the thought of trotting out our little wisdom in order to call him to account is utterly repulsive. Let me illustrate this from the movie uh, The Princess Bride. If you haven't seen it yet, you'll see this when you go, probably. There's this Spaniard who uh, is a great swordsman, and this uh, dread pirate, Robert, is climbing this uh, sheer face, and he's about ten feet from the top, and the Spaniard is going to kill him when he gets to the top, and he knows that. And so the Spaniard says, I'll throw you a rope, pull you up. And he says, no thanks, keeps climbing. And all of a sudden, in that humorous moment, as they banter with one another, this strange face comes over the pirate like this, and he becomes deadly serious. And he looks down and he says, I swear on the soul of Carlos Montoya, my father, I will not drop you. And he says, throw me the rope. Why would he let him throw him the rope? It's because we all know that deep inside, when you esteem somebody's name highly enough, you can be counted on. It means something to esteem God. Now, that's not an ideal movie, by the way. There is no ideal movie. People always ask me, what do you think of movies? I say, some good, some bad. I'll tell you what I hated in that movie. One of the things. They're kicking in and out of this little boy whose grandfather is telling him the story of this princess, Buttercup. And it cuts back into the little boy who's sitting in his bed with his video games all around him. 
And he stops and the grandfather closes the book and he says, Jesus, granddad. And I wanted to stand up except I was the only person in the theater. Some say, we did not do that. Jesus Christ is not to be trifled with, kid. In other words, the movie knew the truth that when you honor a name, you can be counted on. But then it just slugged Jesus right in the face. Jesus Christ, Grandpa. I tell you, if you love Jesus Christ, if you honor his name, you will say no and yes to movies. You won't just praise them. So the second characteristic of your name or of your character is esteem God. And the third characteristic is serve him as a son serves a father. Look at verse 17. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. By my special possession, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, my special possession on the day when I act. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. But now, wait a minute. It said in verse 14, you have said it is vain to serve God. So they were trying to serve God and it was all vain. But now here in verse 17, it says, if you serve him... You will be his special possession and he will spare you in the last day. What's the difference between those two services? It's the difference between the service of a son and the service of a slave. It's the difference between the works of law and the obedience of faith. It's the difference between the younger brother in the parable of the prodigal son and the older brother. You remember? You remember the parable? The younger brother is broken, contrite, devastated. He comes home. He says to his father, I I, I want to serve you now. And the reason I want to serve you is because I can't imagine any place in all the world I'd rather be than in your house where all my needs are met. That's the service of a son. I just want to be in your house where all my needs are met. You remember what the elder brother did? Very crucial to read the rest of the parable. He backed out. Of the house. Wouldn't go in. Stood on the patio where the slaves are. He says, look, if anybody around here deserves a party, I do. If anybody has worked and worked and worked and worked and worked and worked to earn a party, I have. That's the voice of a slave. And it is all in vain. There is service that is in vain and service that is spared. He will spare the son who serves him like a son serves, not like a slave serves. And so the third characteristic we should have this morning is that we should be servants of God, not as slaves, as though we could earn anything from God, as though we could meet his needs instead of having all our needs met in the palace of God. Rather, we should serve as sons who have all of our needs met and simply do the bidding of our Father with delight. Now, there are promises in this text, and I just trace them very briefly, to give you an incentive to be this kind of person, the one who fears God, the one who esteems his name, and the one who serves like a son and not a slave. Promise number one. God promises to hear your words when you're talking 
with each other. Big deal. You see, what I'm trying to do now is go back to answer the question of the justice of God. How do people who fear God, esteem his name, and serve like sons handle the injustice in the world? And the answer is that they handle them by believing these promises that God has given here about how he will vindicate his cause, the right, and bring to the bar the unjust. And his first promise is, I'm going to hear what people say. Let me just read verse 16 and show you what I mean. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. Now, notice it doesn't say spoke to God. They spoke with one another. And the Lord heeded and heard them. Now, that's important. Why is that important? It means that when you give verbal expression to your fear of God, in the kind of conversation you have in the bedroom, in the car, on the street, at the restaurant, every fragment of grace that comes out of your mouth, God will notice. That may not mean as much to you as it would mean if we take into account the second promise. Let me just finish verse 16. It goes like this. The Lord heeded and heard them and A book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord. That means that God will never forget the good that you have done by his grace and for his glory. That means that that lesson you prepare so steadily for those kids who never seem to remember to say thank you. That means that every single thank you note you ever wrote. It means that every smile on the street, every courtesy on the highway, every time you've said, I'm sorry, can we start over again? It was my fault. Every fragment of grace that comes through your hands or out of your mouth goes into the basket of God, or as the psalmist says, into the bottle. And one of these days, he's going to take that bottle and anoint your head with it for your joy and for his glory forever and ever. Not one fragment of righteousness that you've ever performed or will perform will be forgotten by God. The world may not notice. Absolutely be unthinking about what you do as you go to your closet or as you do some silent good deed. God will see it. That's the first promise, and God will never, ever, ever forget it. That's the second promise. God is just. He not only punishes the wicked, he remembers to bless the righteous. As Hebrews 6.10 says, he is not so unrighteous as that he would forget your acts of love. And the third promise here, and perhaps it's the most precious of all for us sinners, is found in verse 17, that God will spare his sons. It says, They, that is those who fear and honor him, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, my special possession on the day when I act, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. And you know what the good news in that is? You don't have to be perfect to be spared as a son. You just have to be at home. See, if you're out on the patio backing off and saying, if that's the way you are, you you can have your party, then you won't be spared. Or if you're still out with the swine, you won't be spared. But if you're broken, sinner that you are, and just home saying, God, I am not worthy. But if you'll have me, I just want to live in this house where all my needs are met and where I can enjoy doing your 
bidding for the rest of my life, then he will spare you. And that brings Christmas into the picture, doesn't it? Because you've got to ask, how can a holy God do such a thing? How can he just say, it's all right, come on home, doesn't matter. We'll just let bygones be bygones after his glory has been trampled in the dirt. Well, the answer, of course, is Christmas. And you can put it in a sentence like this. He will spare sinful sons because he did not spare his only sinless son. So the third promise is, sinners though we are, when we repent and come home and cast ourselves on his mercy and let him meet our needs in his house, he'll spare us in the last day by his mercy. Finally, the promise is this in verse 18. All ambiguity between righteousness and unrighteousness, wickedness and evil or good will be cleared up. Verse 18 says, then once more you shall distinguish. Literally, it means you shall see, recognize between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. Justice will be done. No matter what it looks like, though the wrong seem off so strong. So I close where I began. There are two groups of people in this text and two groups of people in this room. In the one group, there are people who are pushing on God. He's pushing at them and he's pushing back. And they're, they're saying, You're, I don't think you can be trusted. I don't think it pays to serve you. You're not just look at the world the way it is and pushing and resisting and resisting. And then the other group are people who have dropped their arms. Not hard to do. Just drop their arms of rebellion and let his arms go around them, carry them into his home, forgive them, cleanse them, and begin to supply all their needs. And so my plea with you and to you this morning is that if you're still in group number one, resisting full commitment to God, who promises to spare you as a son, if you serve him as a son, not as a slave, that you'll come over to the other side in this Advent season, even now as I ask you to, for the glory of God, for your own eternal joy, for the good of the people around you, it'll change your life. Let's bow and deal with God for just a moment about this matter. Oh, merciful and majestic Father, we stand in awe of your name. We would not do anything in this hour to bring reproach upon your name. Least of all, consider you untrustworthy. Nor may that be the the truth and the confession of every person here. I pray that unbelievers would lay down the arms of rebellion and the hands of resistance and pushing. Cast themselves upon your mercy, though we can't solve every problem of injustice in the world while we look through a glass darkly. 
Nevertheless, we've seen in Jesus enough to know you are not indifferent to sin and suffering. You have taken it upon yourself and you will one day vindicate your cause and the lowly who cling to him. Oh, Lord God, draw people to yourself now as we close, I pray. Vindicate yourself even in our hearts. Establish your people who know and love you and fit them for the warfare of this week with the blessedness of your holy word. And all the people said, Amen.